Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In the first conversation of the year, GIST Healthcare co-founders Chaz Rhodes and Lisa Belomovich joined me to chat about the healthcare trends we're watching for in 2022, including the next phase of the COVID pandemic, the challenge of rising labor costs, surging investment in digital health, and the shifting demographics of Medicare. It's Tuesday, January 18th, and I'm Alex Olgan with GIST Healthcare Daily, where you get the headlines and healthcare business and policy news in under 10 minutes. If you like the podcast, please leave us a rating or a review. It helps other listeners find the show. We can't start the 2022 conversation about healthcare without talking about the COVID pandemic. We're in the midst of an Omicron surge right now. Infections are at record levels. Hospitals are yet again overwhelmed and short-staffed. But the picture is different than this time last year. Three quarters of the population is vaccinated. The variant isn't making people as sick. So what do you expect the next phase of the pandemic to be like? Chaz, let's start with you. I mean, I think if we've learned anything over the last two years of this pandemic, it's not to make any predictions past about three months. Um, but there are, you know, a few reasons to be optimistic as we head into 2022. First of all, it looks like the the Omicron uh, peak is here now, or we, we may be within a week or so of this cresting uh, in the U.S. And if we follow the same pattern that uh, has happened in other countries. With Omicron, you know, it'll go down relatively quickly as well. Um, it's caused a lot of strain in hospitals, but not quite the level of strain that I think people had feared, uh, particularly in places like uh, New York and, and Los Angeles and other places. So, um, you know, as to Omicron itself, you know, we may be on the back end of this and, and get through it. And, and in February, we'll be in a very different, uh, in a very different position. Then you look forward to the rest of 22 and you ask, you know, what happens with the pandemic? And I think it's going to be the slow, painful process of shifting from, you know, an emergency crisis pandemic war footing to beginning to learn how to really live with this virus long term and, and live with it in an endemic state. And I think what doesn't get appreciated enough is endemic doesn't mean that it's gone away or that it's, you know, it's, it's not as serious as the, uh, as, as it is now. I think what it means is we have to decide what's a level of, you know, deaths per month or deaths per year that we're willing to live with. What kind of measures are we willing to continue to engage in on an ongoing basis, whether that's masking in, in crowded places, whether that's continuing to 
take rapid tests before we get together with people who might be more vulnerable to the disease, whatever it is, there is some new normal of behaviors that will be required for us to live with an endemic disease that, uh, you know, that I think we're going to have to get used to over the next year. And that's going to be, you know, a fairly painful process to get from here to there. But the good news is, I think that's probably the direction we're headed absent you know, another variant that, you know, throws everything out of whack uh, again. That, you know, these short-term issues about we don't have enough tests and, um, uh, you know, we, we're not sure how to pay for the tests and all of that stuff is going to, you know, that will salt work itself out over the next uh, couple of months. And I think we'll be in a, in a better position, uh, you know, relative to that stuff. Um, and so then it just becomes a matter of kind of what are we willing to do to live with this long term? We're not, it's not going away. We're not getting rid of it. We're, we're past, we're well past the point of we're defeating COVID. We're not defeating it. We're just going to learn to live with it. Chaz, you brought up an interesting point that the Omicron surge uh, hasn't brought the same number and intensity of hospitalizations than the previous surges had before, but it's interesting to consider the place where hospitals and providers find themselves now. Um, and that is at perhaps the highest levels of stress that they've seen throughout the pandemic. Um, you know, care for other conditions is back at uh, record levels. And I think what we're seeing is that caregiver stress is at its highest level uh, that we've experienced in the past two years, which is, you know, leading to a shortage of nurses and therapists and other key caregivers that we need to manage all kinds of patients across settings. This is not something that is going to go away once the virus wanes. It's a problem that uh, the industry is going to be working through uh, for years to come. You know, like any crisis, I think the COVID pandemic has been a stress test on a lot of uh, a lot of things on the political process on individual behavior but and it's certainly been a stress test on the health system and i think it will leave scar tissue uh, and i think part of that scar tissue is uh is is going to be a persistent long-term workforce crisis and and you know what it's not as though the uh you know with this disease becoming endemic the issues of uh, of worker shortage and caregiver burnout and so forth are going to go away. In fact, they'll you know they'll be with us for quite some time. And some of those drivers are generational uh, and structural, not uh, not crisis driven. Um, but certainly, um, you know we're we're coming out of this in a very different kind of world. You mentioned the workforce shortages. It seems like most healthcare organizations, much like the rest of the economy, are struggling to get enough staff and costs are going up. So what should healthcare organizations be doing other than the go-to solutions of training for more nurses and doctors, upscaling what support staff and mid-level providers can do, introducing more technology? Yeah, it's really important to realize that all of these things which we must do, um, are kind of slow burn solutions uh, and not something that immediately provides relief to a workforce in crisis. You know, Alex, you mentioned training more nurses and other providers. Uh, lots of uh, health systems and medical schools are jumping to the call to do that. 
But, you know, if we were to start training more nurses today, those nurses aren't in the workforce for another three or four years. At minimum, a doctor has seven years of training before they're practicing on their own. And so while that is really, really important and we have to do it, uh, in the short term, we're going to have to find ways to keep the workforce engaged and probably continue to pay more to get the labor we need. And that, Lisa, I think is a really important point about we're, we're going to end up paying more. I think, you know, we're clearly grappling with inflation uh, at sort of record setting levels. It's, you know, the data that were released just this week, you know, show that inflation is at uh, is at a 40 year high in this country right now. It's it's something that our current generation of policy uh, leadership, you know, political leaders, business leaders have not have not had to live with personally. They've not operated in this environment. And that same thing is true in healthcare and healthcare inflation will continue to be a big issue. And, and I think we're, you know, healthcare is going to cost more and more. And this year that problem is going to get uh, a lot worse and it's going to continue to get worse uh, until some of these longer term structural solutions that Lisa just referred to, uh, you know, can really kick in. It's uh, how do we get a workforce that, that more, appropriately balances the work across different skill levels and different um, and different kinds of, uh, of clinical talent, meaning, you know, how do we get, um, you know, folks to do some of the work that used to be done in high acuity, high cost settings by high cost people in lower cost, lower acuity settings done by lower cost people. Uh, and I think that's going to have to happen. That was going to have to happen anyway. It was already beginning to happen. And I think we're just going to have to pull harder on the levers that let us do that. I think it means that we're going to have to leverage technology in a much more aggressive way than we had in, in the past. There's more of a burning platform to figure out how do we integrate virtual care with physical care? How do we use um, artificial intelligence and robotic process automation to augment the workforce? I think all of those technological solutions we will need to be more effective, more quickly than we otherwise would have. How do you think these changes, which many would argue are necessary, will go over with healthcare workers? You know, uh, it is a battle of the guilds. Um, doctors, nurses, and others will uh, are clearly uh, burnt out and stressed, and professional societies will bang the gong and say that they need relief. But anytime someone talks about changing scope of practice or expanding the capabilities of someone at a lower licensure, you know, it causes a medical association or a nurse's association to say, whoa, 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 you're moving too fast. You're taking away things from us. And that could have an adverse impact. You know, I think that that is a political battle that we're going to have to fight um, largely at a state level to enact some of these changes and using more technology and expanding scope of practice that Chaz talked about. I also think that we're going to have worse labor relations over the short term. Uh, you know, clearly coming out of this pandemic, um, you know, there's a there's an increased, I think, appetite for union protections and unionization among healthcare workers. Uh, who you know rightly are demanding better conditions and kind of more balanced uh, uh, work and and better pay more than anything else, uh, and I think those arguments are increasingly going to hold sway. And uh, while you know that may be a positive for 
healthcare workers in terms of protecting their rights and, and increasing their compensation, it also is going to drive up the cost of care uh, in a in a structural way, and so I and and probably slow down some of the uh, uh, kind of labor substitution issues that we were just talking about. Uh, the, you know, this along with it will come this guild behavior that Lisa just talked about, and so. Uh, I think it's uh, it's going to be interesting to watch the relationship between uh, corporate medicine and the workforce over the next five years. 2021 was a record year for investment in digital health. Do you expect more of the same in 2022? I think probably more of the same, to be honest. I think there's a little bit of a narrative right now in the trade press uh, about a bubble uh, whether it's a Medicare Advantage bubble or a telehealth bubble, and if you look at the valuation of some of the companies that went public last year, that you know you can see evidence for that. Uh, clearly, some of the very heated valuations I have uh, have come back to earth. Um, but there's no reason to expect that, given the level of liquidity in the economy right now, and given the urgency of the problem, uh, that there's not going to be uh, yet more investment in new solutions, new companies trying to solve these problems with new technologies and so forth. I do think eventually there's going to be a reckoning and a shakeout, and and uh, the question will really be about value. Um, you know, let's let's be honest about why this is all happening, or what one of the big drivers of this of this uh, uh, very hot market right now uh, across the last couple of years. It's all the federal money that flowed into healthcare that's sort of masked, um, you know, operational shortfalls uh, among the purchasers of these technologies. And so, if I'm a health system. Uh, I might have just had the best year I've ever had financially, and part of that is because Uncle Sugar just gave me a lot of money to supplement my uh, operations, which otherwise might not have been producing the kind of returns I wanted. And so I was able to invest that money in new solutions and in, in buying some of these new technologies. And by the way, I'm as a health system, I'm probably feeling a little paranoid that I'm falling behind disruptors who are out there with all this great new technology and new services and so forth. So. Um, there is a little bit of a of a tulip mania going on with telehealth, probably, and and we will eventually see a shakeout there. I'm not sure how much of that's going to happen in 2022. Chaz, I want to follow up on something you said that for many systems, last year was one of their best years financially, partially because of the influx of federal dollars. Do you expect that to change this year, and why? I think a lot of it was uh, was federal aid masking uh, masking performance, and some of that was left over from 2020, uh, and you know, and still flowing into the system, and then catch up uh, on on care that was delayed um, during 2020 that uh, that got delivered in 2021. So I think as things begin to even back out in 2022, you'll see some of the same economic pressures on uh, on health hospitals and health systems that. You know, we were seeing going into the pandemic, which is, you know, rising costs, downward pressure on price, um, and I think margin compression. So I, I, you know, I would expect this to be a tougher year, uh, and I think what you'll see as a result of that is, is more consolidation. I, I think you'll see uh, larger health systems look to get larger. I think you'll see uh, regional consolidation across markets. Uh, you know, clearly there continues to be a concern. I think about antitrust issues and in-market horizontal consolidation, but I do think you will see, um, you know, at least a handful, if not more, large deals uh, among health systems who are looking to create um, sort of super regional, uh, uh, um, you know, on the order of $20 billion uh, of revenue health systems.
back to digital health. We've all been spending so much time in our homes over these last few years and have been able to get everything delivered or done at home. We're continuing to see big investments in care in the home, but much of the focus is still on primary care and chronic disease management. Lisa, what about more specialty or complicated care? Do you anticipate more digital health innovation in those areas? I think that we're probably not talking enough about what digital health can do for people, uh, you know, with a more uh, serious episodic condition, you know, someone who's recovering from surgery, how are we going to manage that virtually rather than having them haul themselves into the doctor's office or have to go back to the hospital? You know, these tools should be applied to the full spectrum of care. Uh, Primary care has, you know, great benefits in increasing access, building loyalty, Um, You know, but we can probably see some real clinical uh, impact further up the spectrum of acuity. With all these emerging care options, there's been a huge demand for physicians from a variety of disruptors, digital health companies, payers, big box retail, etc. Do you expect that to continue, Lisa? Yeah, there's clearly going to be an ongoing battle for provider capabilities in a couple of very hot areas. You mentioned payers wanting to own providers. A lot of that is focused on primary care and the primary care physician specifically. We've seen Walgreens move pretty aggressively through their partnership with Village MD to expand uh, primary care capabilities led by doctors in a lot of their stores. CVS last year shifted gears uh, toward a more physician-driven model. You know, but I think these ideas are all great in theory, but the challenge is going to be where are they going to find those primary care physicians? It's not like doctors are hanging around on street corners looking for a job. So you know, what this is going to do is to continue to heat up the market uh, for talent. Do you think part of that provider acquisition by payers, health systems, and other companies is part of the push to become the go-to place for anything healthcare in an attempt to gain consumer loyalty? Chaz, we'll start with you. It feels as though the the nexus of strategy now is really shifted toward this notion of becoming a platform, um, being the sort of all comprehensive, uh, um, anywhere, anytime, uh, care provider, care payer uh, that sits at sort of every seat around the table, if you will, and, and creates a care ecosystem around the consumer that keeps them engaged and loyal over time. That feels like the dominant competitive dynamic right now in healthcare. And I think that's just going to continue. I think what you will increasingly see is some of these very large, well-capitalized players uh, now be forced to deliver the goods on that promise and, and show that uh, that doesn't just increase price, that it actually also uh, improves care and, and can reduce uh, overall cost of care. Yeah, it's interesting to think about, you know, well-capitalized players, you know, take very large national payers uh, that now are getting into uh, care provision, and they have the same goal that health systems have to develop that long-term loyalty with consumers. This is why they are so interested in telemedicine and virtual care. You know, by and large, most consumers don't love their health plans. They don't think that they get a lot of value directly from them. Well, if my insurance company can give me a telemedicine visit, that is something uh, that I view as good, and it goes toward building long-term loyalty. But like Chaz said, 
Uh, that doesn't just exist in a vacuum. If we start talking about things, and one of the big trends of 2021 was insurers launching virtual primary care insurance plans. Again, that sounds great. I can get primary care from my home, but now they're going to have to figure out what happens after that telemedicine visit. If I need a test or if I need to be connected with a specialist, will they be able to do that in a seamless way that both satisfies the consumer and solves the clinical need? That's the test that we need to be looking toward. I can't believe it's already here, but 2022 is a midterm election year. Congress is already quite closely divided. Are you expecting any efforts to pass significant health care reforms like the Build Back Better Act or others before election season really starts in earnest? The legislative window will largely close uh, across the course of this year. We're into we're very shortly going to be into silly season uh, in terms of, uh, of politics. Um, whether or not Build Back Better actually ends up in some form getting passed before we go into the summer, I think is, you know, remains to be seen. It surely will be scaled dramatically back from what was proposed by the administration. And that may very well mean that some or all of the healthcare proposals in that bill uh, get left by the side of the road. Um, I would be surprised if there wasn't some uh, deliberate effort by the Democrats to stabilize the um, ACA exchanges and, and sort of make some of those subsidy increases uh, permanent. But I think beyond that, I wouldn't expect too much more legislatively. And then I think the theme for the next two years of the Biden administration turns into regulation. And, you know, what can they do via regulation to advance some of their healthcare goals around competition and equity and reducing cost and driving toward value. And I think we have a pretty clear window into what that regulatory agenda is going to be. The things that you mentioned, Chaz, around antitrust, around continuing to try and find ways to bring more uh, diversity and equity to healthcare policy. Uh, transparency um, is always going to be top on the list as well. Um, you know, and I would also be looking to uh, the administration to continue the regulatory uh, loosening that we saw around the pandemic, around telemedicine, around scope of practice. Um, those things will more likely than not be made permanent across uh, the next year. One of the hottest growth areas these last few years has been the lucrative Medicare Advantage market. But it's important to note that 2022 is the year that will reach the peak of the so-called silver tsunami of baby boomers aging into Medicare. So looking at a few years, how do you think the MA market will change? The reason it's so hot right now is because you get a window of opportunity when somebody turns 65 to sign them up for a Medicare Advantage plan. Uh, and then they typically don't churn the way that uh, enrollees churn in commercial uh, insurance in the employee population. And so you have them for some period of time. Your, your real growth opportunity in Medicare Advantage is capturing those new Medicare enrollees. And so as that begins to decelerate uh, over the, you know, as, as we descend the back half of this curve, I think that probably changes the strategic calculus uh, among us, some of these players. Yeah, it's very interesting to contemplate whether the uh, large insurers will be as gung-ho about their Medicare Advantage business five to 10 years from now. You know, it's really the salad days for MA right now. Uh, you know, the payment from the government is high and largely the folks that they are bringing in are young baby boomers, you know, average population being 65 to 70. 
uh, you know, is the business going to be as attractive when the average baby boomer is 80 to 85 years old, when they're at the peak of their high cost healthcare utilization years? And by that time, we would predict that what the government is paying per member per year uh, will probably also start to tick down. Uh, so those dynamics will be, uh, you know, very interesting to watch across uh, the next decade. Seems like there are definitely some changes on the horizon for payers as the population ages. But what about on the provider and hospital side of the house? I mean, we've been talking for over a decade about the need to uh, manage patients better in primary care to keep them out of the hospital or to take a patient who has chronic disease and treat them in a lower cost setting that's not the emergency room or an inpatient bed. Um, That crisis now is looming right in front of us. And if health systems don't figure out a way to do it. It's easy to see a future where the hospital feels a lot more like a skilled nursing facility uh, than the hospital that we have today. Particularly in a world where no one wants to be in a skilled nursing facility, right? So I think one of the things that has happened during the pandemic is we've seen that the post-acute care setting is one of the most fragile Uh, both in terms of the quality of care, in terms of the economic sustainability, and and in terms of people wanting to be in it for safety reasons. And so um, I think what's happening now is a lot of that uh, post-acute, things that could be done in a post-acute setting are backing up into hospitals, which is creating longer length of stay, higher cost. And I think that trend will continue as well. And hospitals have got to figure that out, right? Um, if you look at most health systems, they largely got out of the post-acute business or pared back their, uh, their presence in post-acute over the last decade because there wasn't great margin to be made. I think you'll see a deliberate reinvestment in post-acute care uh, and home-based care and, and all of that for seniors uh, over the next 10 years because of uh, this, uh, this challenge. We've talked a lot about big challenges that lie ahead. So what is one thing that makes each of you hopeful about the future of healthcare in 2022 and going forward? I mean, the only thing that, that I feel positive about all of these uh, converging forces that feel crushing is that they're a forcing function that when we navigate through them, if we're actually able to do the things that we've talked about doing in the industry, and these challenges make that happen, that hopefully we'll have a healthcare industry that actually is lower cost and more functional and closer to the consumer, even if the path to get there will be really, really hard when we're in the middle of it. A couple of things make me hopeful. You know, I think one is we have seen an, just an incredible once in a generation success story in terms of of biomedical innovation, right? I mean, we were largely rescued in this pandemic by the pharmaceutical industry, mostly government-funded innovation uh, in vaccines, and it worked. And and I think what it proved is that if we really put our minds to it and really put our investment dollars behind it, we can actually leverage technology to solve big problems. I think it's hopeful that um, you're seeing record numbers of people want to go to medical school uh, you know, I think there is a, uh, you know, a, a sense that there's a pur- there's purpose and calling in medicine. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that that continues and that folks will want to engage, young people will want to, you know, pursue a career in medicine and science. 
uh, as a result of the pandemic. I think that's uh, that would be a great uh, outcome of this. The other thing it's done with at least half the population uh, is it has got people paying more attention to their health, what kind of risks they take, and more thoughtful about how they manage their health and monitor their health. And I think that's probably on balance, a good thing. I mean, it could end up driving up cost uh, because, uh, you know, because people pursue more preventative care, or they pr pursue more uh, primary care, or whatever it is. But I think it's worth remembering that the purpose of healthcare isn't to reduce the cost of healthcare. The purpose of healthcare is to improve health. And I think uh, whenever you see that happen, you ought to celebrate it. And I think we've certainly seen that uh, across the pandemic. That was GIST Healthcare co-founders Chaz Rhodes and Lisa Belomovich. Thanks for listening to GIST Healthcare Daily. I'm Alex Olkin. You can check out more insights on healthcare business and policy news on GISTHealthcare.com. GIST Healthcare Daily is an independent production of GIST Healthcare. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.